This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September 25th. Today, the rough transcript of President Trump's call with Ukraine's leader, Rudy Giuliani's behind-the-scenes role in foreign policy, and an uncertain future for the Boy Scouts. So, Shane Harris, what is this five-page document that I'm holding? You are holding a newly declassified rough transcript, or officially called a memorandum of telephone conversation, between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine that occurred on July 25th of this year. And this memo was released this morning. Yes, it was released this morning, Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. And it's a very big deal. It's a very big deal. Shane Harris covers national security and intelligence for The Washington Post. It's important to note this is not a verbatim transcript, although it does have a presentation of dialogue here. These kinds of memos are based on records and notes and recollections of people who might have been in the Situation Room at the time or policy staff who were told to listen in and memorialize the conversation in a written form as it took place. And this conversation is important because it's at the center of the impeachment inquiry into the president. The phone call was part of what inspired a whistleblower in the intelligence community to file a formal complaint. This call is a significant piece of that complaint. Something in this call, as well as other events, struck this person as inappropriate, maybe illegal, and spurred him or her to go to the inspector general and to flag it. So at least according to this rough transcript, what was this phone call all about? Well, it starts off very pleasant. And the president says in his first lines, congratulations on a great victory. President Zelensky's party had just secured a majority in parliament. And he had previously already been elected to his position. And Zelensky actually jokes, every time we win big, we seem to you know, get a phone call with you. I should keep winning more things. And you can see him really trying to be chummy with the president. And he's very flattering to him. The president fairly soon in the phone call switches to reminding President Zelensky of how much aid uh, the United States has given to Ukraine. He says, we spend a lot of effort and a lot of time, more than European countries. He says, the United States has been very, very good to Ukraine. President Zelensky says, you're absolutely right. Not only 100%, but actually 1,000%. And he says, uh, tellingly, I'm very grateful to you because the United States is doing quite a lot for Ukraine. We're even ready to continue to cooperate for the next step. Specifically, we're ready to buy more javelins. Those are missiles from the United States. So he says, hey, you've been great to us. We're getting ready to buy more weapons. This is a great thing. Then President Trump switches and says, I would like you to do us a favor, and then begins laying out a number of people and organizations that he wants the Ukrainian government's assistance investigating and says, I'm going to have the attorney general, Bill Barr, and my personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, get in touch with you about that. That's where this conversation shifts into, here's what I need you, Zelensky, to do for me. And it's important to remember, of course, the context that was leading up to this phone call. So at this point, on July 25th, the U.S. is withholding millions of dollars of military aid to Ukraine. And so in this transcript, 
there's some discussion of that military aid, and immediately President Trump turns to, and I want you to do me a favor and launch this investigation. And so to you reading this, did it give you the sense that there appeared to be some kind of quid pro quo expectation here from President Trump? Expectation, I think, is is fair to infer from this. We know from our reporting that the president before this call had directed his budget director and his acting chief of staff to hold, uh, to freeze military aid to Ukraine. He does not specifically say, Trump doesn't say to Zelensky in this call, unless you investigate these people, I won't give you the aid. But the context of that is all over this call. And certainly at this point, the president of Ukraine desperately wanted that aid, had reason to believe it wasn't coming. And also, and he refers to this repeatedly throughout the call, is stressing how much he wants to meet with the president, how much he wants to have a good relationship with the president. I mean, it's, it's, it's the flattery that he showers on Trump throughout this call is pretty extraordinary. Um, so I don't think we should look at this call in a vacuum. I think it's also important to know that the whistleblower is not viewing this call in a vacuum. That is our best understanding. His or her complaint involves more than just this call. This is a piece of a broader narrative that the whistleblower is calling out. As you mentioned, one of the things that President Trump mentions during this call is Attorney General William Barr and seems to say that Barr can work with Ukrainian officials on conducting some kind of investigation. What did he make of that? And that, to me, seems like an extremely abnormal move. Did it strike you the same way? Abnormal and, I think, objectively inappropriate. First of all, the president is not supposed to direct the attorney general to investigate something. The attorney general is supposed to be an independent official who looks into potential criminal matters or violations of law. And if career prosecutors and investigators determine there's a reason to investigate, they do that. The president directing the attorney general to investigate his political enemies, okay, that's the kind of thing that happened in you know, the Watergate era, right? These are we, we built reforms to stop that from happening happening decades ago, when the president is also saying that I'm going to kind of lend you these resources or tell the attorney general to call you. So at one point he says so that, you know, we can get to the bottom of it uh, in reference to this U.S. company he wants to look into. That is, I think, very clearly crossing a line. It's certainly breaking a norm to not only have your AG look into something, but to work with a foreign government to do it. I'm not aware of that ever happening. So what we know is that this phone call is part of what prompted somebody in the intelligence community to make a formal complaint. Now lawmakers are trying to get a hold of that complaint. If they have the transcript of the phone call, why is seeing the complaint about the phone call so important? Well, I think because the phone call is one piece of the broader story that the whistleblower was trying to tell to the inspector general and that we now know the whistleblower wants to tell to Congress. The whistleblower's lawyer has made that very explicit. This person wants to come in and talk to Congress about this. So Congress clearly is saying, okay, we've got this phone call. That's good. There's a lot of troubling information in here. We now need to see the full complaint. And remember that from the beginning, that is what Democrats in particular in the Congress have been pressing for. When they first became aware of the whistleblower complaint, it wasn't clear that there was a transcript of a phone call or even what phone call it was. We broke that out through our reporting. Now what lawmakers want to see is the full picture. And I think they don't want to be limited to just this phone call and want to make clear that this is one piece of a broader puzzle that 
the whistleblower is trying to convey to lawmakers. You said that what is happening in this phone call is clearly against a norm of how things are done in government. But is there an argument to be made that that what is happening in this phone call is illegal? I think there might be some lawyers who would be eager to entertain that question and to debate it. The president has a lot of latitude, as we've learned over the past two or three years, to direct the resources of the federal government, to set policy. Whether or not, though, a particular law is being broken here, I think, is going to hinge on you know whether the president is in some way directing the attorney general illegally to get involved with another investigation. I think we don't know that. At the very least, it's inappropriate. I'm sure people would argue that it's unethical. And I think clearly Democrats would argue it's potentially impeachable. The question of whether or not there is a crime here, though, I don't know that we can see that precisely from this readout of the phone call. So why did the White House choose to release this rough transcript of the phone call? It's a great question, and there may be more than one answer to this. We know from our previous reporting that the president seemed to be pretty unconcerned. He didn't seem to think that it showed any wrongdoing and felt that once people read it, the story would sort of you know go away or it would diminish in importance. I mean, I think he thinks that this is, as he's put it, a beautiful phone call. There's nothing wrong with it. He's just asking for a favor. He's just asking for a favor, right? <laughs> Although he didn't say that at the time. We also know that there were aides around him who thought, no, this transcript looks very bad. I think that the pressure was mounting based on news reports. This could be the White House trying to just get ahead of this story. You know, there's always a school of thought in Washington around these kinds of scandals that involve hidden documents. Go ahead, release the documents, get it out there. You can start forming the argument, get ahead of it, and sort of rip the Band-Aid off and be done with it. What's happened here is this information has now been, you know, kind of pushed out into the bloodstream. And Democrats in Congress want more. And I think Republicans probably in Congress want to see more as well. So it is clearly the White House trying to get ahead of this. But I don't think that we should assume that there is, you know, a unanimous opinion within the White House or the administration that this isn't a problem. Shane Harris covers national security and intelligence for The Post. Joseph McGuire, the acting director of national intelligence, is scheduled to testify to Congress on Thursday about this whistleblower complaint in open and closed hearings. On Wednesday afternoon, President Trump met with President Zelensky at the United Nations. Talking to reporters, Zelensky said that there was nothing improper about his phone call with Trump. I think good uh, phone call. It was normal. We spoke about many things and I... So I think, and you read it, that nobody pushed pushed me. Yes. In other words, no pressure. So at one time, Rudy Giuliani was best known as being the mayor of New York, including on the attacks on September 11th. But for the past couple of years, he has been Trump's personal lawyer, and he was the lawyer who represented Trump during the latter stages of the Mueller investigation. Greg Miller is a national security correspondent for The Post, and he's been reporting on a story about the circumstances that led to the phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky. And it seems that the driving force behind that call was Giuliani. He does not work for the government. He does not have any position in the government. 
And so his interactions with the government are all the more troubling. So it's starting to become very clear that Rudy Giuliani is at the center of this controversy about President Trump and his interactions with Ukraine. Take us back to how that started out. How did Rudy Giuliani first get involved in trying to build up a relationship with Ukrainian officials? So basically, it starts even while he is working for Trump on the Russia investigation. He himself has said in interviews that he had investigators come to his office saying they thought he should be looking at events in Ukraine regarding the Biden family. Of course, the Manafort case was all centered in Ukraine, and that was terribly damaging to Trump's candidacy in 2016. So there were lots of people around Trump who wanted to settle political scores there. So Giuliani, more than you know, a year ago, began fixating on Ukraine and trying to insert himself into the U.S. relationship with that country. And what did that actually look like? What it looks like is really uneven and completely out of channels. It almost looks like he establishes himself as sort of this parallel representative of the president outside any process. Let's ask the man himself, the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Mayor, great to have you with us tonight. (laughs) How are you, Shannon? He's going out and giving television interviews in which he's declaring that he's going to go to Ukraine and start to try to dig up dirt and muck around in investigations there, all to, to help the president. The reality is I came about this by accident investigating Ukrainian collusion with Democrats to affect the election. And over the next three to four months, you're going to find out all about that. And people in the White House are literally watching this unfold on television, saying, what in the world is happening here? And as this was all unfolding, what was he actually doing? So what he's not doing is advancing the interests of the United States, right? He is not out there negotiating things that are consistent with American foreign policy objectives in the region. He is freelancing in a very nakedly political way. I mean, he basically has two main targets, right? He is trying to settle scores over the Manafort investigation, and he is trying to dig up dirt on the president's Probably the candidate that the Trump team seems to fear the most, the former vice president, Joe Biden. Biden's son took millions of dollars out of the Ukraine. Let me, His friend yeah. was paying Joe's son three, four, five, possibly more millions of dollars. Biden's going to be investigated no matter what. You can't escape those facts no matter how much the media tries. To- so he is working around the edges, right, outside of this process. But he's, importantly, he is in the president's ear. He is in the White House. He is in the Oval Office. People see him coming and going. He is shuttling back and forth overseas and engaging in meetings directly or indirectly. He hires a couple of lieutenants who represent him in Ukraine and start gathering material that he starts bringing back and throwing into the mix here in Washington So he is agitating. He is also increasingly involved in pushing aside anybody who might interfere or oversee or object to what he is up to. And that starts with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. Because our ambassador there was working for Hillary Clinton, working for the Democrats and for George Soros. So Yovanovitch is a a career diplomat. She had been appointed ambassador to Ukraine during the Obama presidency. 
but she's not seen as political. She was thrust into that job at a really difficult moment for that country amid a major struggle between Ukraine and Russia. Giuliani, through his sources, becomes convinced that she is out there undermining the president, that she is involved in some kind of conspiracy related to exposing Paul Manafort. He starts to throw out even more wild accusations about her, that she is mixed up in some sort of broader George Soros conspiracy, Hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's some of it is just nonsensical, but he ingests all of this and he's using this information to campaign behind the scenes to have her removed. And he's told us this in interviews. And there is overwhelming evidence of Ukrainian information being given to Democratic National Committee operatives and to Hillary operatives. And the conduit was our embassy in Ukraine. One of the real points of initial concern is the removal of the American ambassador to Ukraine, which happened in May of this year. She was not scheduled to leave at that time. There were no official complaints about her work. She was highly regarded in the diplomatic community. And nevertheless, she was yanked out of that job. And what was the reaction from diplomats and from national security officials as they're seeing this unfold, seeing this behind-the-scenes campaign that Rudy Giuliani is trying to make happen, and seeing how the private lawyer for the president suddenly is, in some ways, stepping over the bounds of, like, the State Department. So the reaction at first is just deep concern, and then over time it just gets deeper and deeper and worse and worse. Initially, they're basically baffled. What is Giuliani doing and on what authority? Who is he representing and and how does that affect us and our ability to do our job in managing this relationship? When the ambassador is removed abruptly ahead of schedule, you know, there are lots of people at the State Department and at the NSC at the White House saying, what in the world just happened? Who is behind this? Why is this person gone? So there's a sense of alarm. But that really intensifies in July as the NSC at the White House and others try to start to answer that question And then they see other problems. They see, why are we holding back hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to Ukraine again? I mean, they seem to desperately need it. What's going on there? Why are we playing around with withholding a meeting that we appear to have agreed to between Trump and the new president of Ukraine? And people inside start to get really legitimately worried that Trump himself, not just Giuliani, Trump himself is starting to use the leverage of the U.S. relationship with Ukraine for his own political gain. And so you have to wonder when national security officials and diplomats are watching this all unfold, that they might have been fearing basically the exact phone call that ended up happening between President Trump and the Ukrainian president. Yeah, because internally there are all these conversations. Are we going to have a conversation with with the new leader of Ukraine on what terms? So, you know, NSC officials are always working those things and making those plans. But in this case, some of them are think, starting to think as they start to piece this broader picture together, maybe this is not a good idea right now. We don't really know exactly what Giuliani is up to, but it looks problematic. The things that we're doing internally, like holding off this money, are hard to understand If we put Trump on the phone with him, what is that conversation going to be like? And as one official told me, you know, we were increasingly worried that it was not going to be about the U.S. relationship with Ukraine. So what has Rudy Giuliani said about all this? And Rudy, you've been listening to this conversation. I sure have. And I'd like to say to Mr. Mr. Hahn, I should sue you for libel. 
He's very defiant. I mean, he's volatile, increasingly volatile in his television interviews. He was on Fox last night asserting lots of different things, that he was put up to this by yeah, the State Department. Uh, by the way, do you have any idea that the State Department... So then you know the libel law. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Chris, you don't know what you're talking about. He is increasingly bombastically saying, just hitting again and again at the corruption of the Bidens, right? It's become the sort of Ahab-like personality that he displays. Right? He's, he's unable to see anything else. He doesn't appear to recognize how his own role in this broader sequence now looks. And it would appear that that may not be actually the best tactic for him and for the president right now. Digging into this idea of, well, there needs to be an investigation into Joe Biden, that that makes it look even more that this conversation with the Ukrainian president was explicitly political or or for a political aim. The fact that he's talking about that openly is kind of undermining yeah, he and the president both do this, and it's mind-boggling, right, because it's it's so illogical, because it is so seemingly self-incriminating, and it seems to make their problems only worse and deeper. You know, the behavior through this chronology is hard to fathom in a lot of moments. I mean, this call happens literally one day after Bob Mueller's up on the Hill testifying about the Russia investigation. Here we have a president who has survived by the skin of his teeth a daunting threat to his presidency, who turns around and in this very call scoffs at that, scoffs at Mueller, disparages him, insults him, and dives directly into another scandal. Greg Miller is a national security correspondent for The Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing. How Boy Scout leaders across the country are trying to protect the organization's future. We see it as, you know, symbolic of American tradition, and it's something that's passed down through the generations. And, you know, I wanted to ask, why are kids today continuing to join the Scouts, and how are the leaders and the parents trying to recruit other families to join this extremely fraught organization in a time like this? I'm Samantha Schmidt, and I write about gender and family issues for The Post. For years, the Boy Scouts have grappled with sexual abuse allegations and controversies over allowing gay members and leaders. And now, as the organization faces dwindling membership and potential bankruptcy, it's making even bigger changes in order to survive. They've also rebranded their namesake program to be called Scouts BSA instead of the Boy Scouts. So they're really trying to become more inclusive and adjust to changing times. And, you know, depending on who you ask, they're doing this for different reasons. 
when you ask the Boy Scouts of America, they say that they've heard from their troops and from their families that girls have always wanted to be a part of the program. Have you always wanted to be in the Scouts? Yeah, because I used to be in Girl Scouts and it wasn't like... Yeah, it was always, it was always just in crap. I don't... I like outdoors, it's fun. Yeah, they do more camping. Yeah. But then when you ask other people, they say it's because of dwindling membership and feeling the need to expand the pool of people they can recruit from. When you look at membership over the past decade, youth membership in the Boy Scouts of America has declined more than 26 percent. And it's unclear exactly why, but people give a number of factors. For one, they say parents are busier than ever. More parents are both working outside of the home. Youth today have more options than ever before for extracurricular activities. Schedules are busier and busier. But they've also lost a number of members because of just a number of these changes in recent years. For example, last year, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints announced it would be cutting ties with the organization, and the church had been the largest participant in the Boy Scouts program in the U.S., making up nearly 20 percent of all youth members. So I went to a recruitment night in northern Maryland, and, you know, I saw this woman, Julie Bassian, is the epitome of a den mother. Like, she has been a part of this organization for so many years, and even now that her adult sons have aged out of the program, both of them having become Eagle Scouts, she's continued to work with her local scouting troop. You know, she was going up to parents at the booth. You know, she had her uniform tucked into her navy green shorts, and she had a headband on with, like, the scouts' honor on it. And, you know, she was asking moms and dads that were pushing strollers and holding babies, like, you want to join the scouts? You interested in the scouts? She's seen how it's helped build character and leadership skills in all of these boys. And she has pins on her uniform for the six different Eagle Scouts she helped mentor, in addition to her two sons. So she's seen people all the way through this program, and she sees the value in it. But she actually said that she feels that these recent lawsuits and all of these other headlines that keep popping up about the Boy Scouts are only making it harder for her to recruit. Samantha Schmidt writes about gender and family issues for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening and for sharing your thoughts about the show online. For example, Twitter user Addison James Brothers tweeted about last Friday's show. That one featured a story about the opioid epidemic in Massachusetts, followed by a more uplifting one about the dogs that survived Michael Vick's dogfighting ring. Addison said that he appreciated how we end each episode on a mostly high note, especially today, he said. It was rough. <laughs> Like, R-U-F-F, rough. You can share your thoughts about the show by using the hashtag PostReports on Twitter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.